is Histories and Mysteries. I'm Ashley. And I'm Jessica. And on this week's episode, Ashley is going to be talking about the murder of Seth and Eunice. Mm -hmm. And I am going to be doing deathbed confessions. Ooh, that'll be fun. Well, I mean, not fun, but... (laughs) Honestly, I apologize ahead of time. It's a lazy episode for me. I've had a super busy week mm. and I thought it would be cute to tie it in next week. So, okay, very yeah. cool. Well, mine is a murder again. Ooh, not uh-huh. ooh, but yeah. <clears throat> so, I got my resources from oxygentruecrime.com mm-hmm. and I watched the show snapped whoa snapped can i just give my resources now since i always forget sure okay <laughs> were the, all those were those all yours <laughs> yeah that's it okay <laughs> so <laughs> i used buzzfeed because mm. they always have the best yep and ranker oh yeah they're a good one yeah so just so i don't forget <laughs> Awesome. All right. Well, mine's a little bit longer, so I'm going to dive right in. Okay. So our story begins in 1969 Ghana, where Seth, the youngest of six, was born. According to his friends and family, Seth always had a drive about him. He wanted to succeed in life. And in 1992, at the age of 23, he moved to the U.S. to get a degree in IT at Montgomery College, which is right outside of D.C., Amazing. Can you imagine at 23 moving to another country? No. That sounds terrifying. I mean, fun, but terrifying. Terrifying, especially if you don't know anybody. Yeah. Like, it's just awful. Yeah, and I don't know if he had family here already, because he ends up having quite a bit of family around him. Oh, okay. But I'm not sure if he already had family or if they, like, came after. Yeah. Either way, it's nerve-wracking. Yeah. Um, So even though he was out of Ghana... He did find a community of other people from Ghana that he was able to become a part of. So he was really active in the um, community, the Ghana community around him and the church and all that kind of stuff. Oh, good. Yeah. While going to school, Seth worked at a grocery store. um, And while working there, he met a lady named Sheila. Sheila was. Sorry. Sorry. Can I just? I have a funny story. Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> so at one point in my husband and I's relationship, we had to pretend uh, that we were broken up because his ex is crazy. <laughs> and the name we put in his phone for me was Sheila. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. <laughs> and it makes sense when you hear the story. Oh, no. <laughs> So (laughs) Sheila was 10 years older than him. So, I mean, you're not older than your husband, but there's that age gap with you guys. Yeah. And she did run her own home daycare. She was also heavily involved in the church church and she owned her own home. So she was pretty well established. And everyone said what a great couple they were. Um, Three years into the relationship, they finally decided to get married. Was she also from Ghana? She wasn't. She was from America. Um, And one year after the marriage, Seth officially became a U.S. citizen. 
Oh, yeah. Um, during this time, Sheila supported him so he could finish his degree. Uh, and after he got it, he started his own IT company and it was really successful. And Sheila's home daycare was also really successful. I mean, there's a ton of money in daycare, right? Yep. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you're paying it. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And so they both together were doing really well. And they ended up buying a house together. Sheila kept her house because she ran the daycare out of it. But they ended up buying another house. And (laughs) someone, one of their friends said, quote, they were not afraid to spend the money that they had. So I wish I could be that. I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So the house that they bought um, was into the 2000s and they bought it in a really nice area of Prince George County. So Prince George County as a whole is not nice. Um, I used to live in Maryland and from my limited knowledge of it, I remember just being like, the scary place <laughs> and like it the is, whole of prince george yeah like prince george county um it oh, has a higher than average crime rate for the metro area and has the most police shootings um out of any other county in america holy crap okay but where they bought their house was like a super nice super rich area of prince george county Okay. It was like the nicest area you could get. And their house was a million dollar house. Wow. So adjusted for inflation today, it's $1.5 million home. So they were holy crap. They were doing real good for themselves. Well, and they have the other house too. Right. And they actually decided to turn their basement into an apartment and rent it out. And the first person that they rented it out to was Sheila's younger brother, Samuel Culley, which worked out well because, you know, it's someone you trust. But trust. Yes. Trust. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Um, gosh. But sadly, in December of 2007, 13 years into the relationship, they decided to divorce. 13 years. 13 years. Yeah. Uh, They said it wasn't messy. They had just grown apart. Um, They had signed a prenup. So there wasn't like, you know, a lot of fighting over that. They didn't have any kids that they had to like figure any custody thing out. So it was a pretty easy split. Mm -hmm. Uh, But a year later, Seth met Eunice Ba. And um, they met at a Ghanaian, Ghanaian, Ghanaian community gathering. I knew I was going to say this wrong. And they said it in the documentary. And for some reason, any like, like change of the word Ghana. So like, like someone who's from Ghana or anything like that. I knew I was going to mess up. I was like, I can't say these words. I know. I <laughs> I feel bad whenever we do like a different country. Yeah. Because like no matter how many times we listen to it, we're never going to say it right. I know. But it's just like saying like Canadian, American, Ghanaian. Yeah. <laughs> I can't do it. Ghanaian. Maybe. Ghanaian. Ghanaian. Ghana. It's Ghana, right? Yeah. Ghanaian. Ghanaian? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, they met at a community <laughs> gathering of that, of people from Ghana. 
<laughs> people from Ghana community gathering. So Eunice was also from Ghana. Oh, good. And they hit it off. Aww. And like Seth, Eunice had immigrated from Ghana in 1996. <laughs> there was a hair. Oh, I thought you were telling me to pause it. <laughs> no, there was a hair and I was just floofing it away. Oh, okay. <laughs> so she came over in 1996 and she was now a working nurse. And apparently Seth fell really hard for Eunice. Hmm. After a few months together, Eunice moved into his house in his neighborhood of Oak Creek, that really nice house, or yeah, that really nice house in a really nice neighborhood. And a year later, Seth and Eunice had a bunch of friends and family over to celebrate his birthday and to announce that Eunice was pregnant and they were engaged. Aww. Yeah. But the happiness was short-lived. Three days later, Mm. on January 14th, 2009 911 gets a phone call from at about 9:30 in the morning from an upscale gated community called Oak Creek and it came from a man named David Sarpong and he said that he was at Seth Adu's home because he hadn't heard from him in a few days and he was checking up on him and the 911 call went like this 911 they uh you know, this, I'm David and blah, 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 blah. And I said, David, how do you know Seth? And David said, that's my cousin. And 911 said, okay, that's your cousin. And David said, I just got a phone call from one of our cousins that, um, you know, they can't find, they've been trying to call him and they couldn't find him. They've called his office and he's not there. I just came to his house, his car that he drives every day is sitting in front of the parking lot or the um, driveway. He also said that Seth's fiance, Eunice Ba, wasn't returning the calls either. So he was like extra worried now. And this was weird to me. <laughs> okay. I mean, nothing like bad came from it. And I'm glad they did it, but it also seems really weird. So apparently, since there was a pregnant woman that might be in trouble, the police didn't need a warrant to enter Seth and Eunice's house. Mm-hmm. But like, there wasn't any evidence that she was in trouble. It's just she wasn't answering her phone. So I just feel like that's a flimsy reason to enter someone's house. Yeah, but I think also due to the fact that Seth was missing and his car was in the driveway and they kind of probably just assumed because they're in a relationship that it was a domestic and... That maybe something happened to Eunice. Yeah, maybe. I think it was just a lot of um, different circumstances and a lot of different pieces that kind of added to them entering the home. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely agree with that. But I just feel like if it were the other way around and they were like, like if she was in trouble, like or like like law in trouble and they entered yeah. her house because of that, I feel like they could get in trouble. You know what I mean? Probably. I just didn't think, I thought that was a little flimsy, but I mean, it's a good thing they did. Yeah. But what they found was awful. There was blood all over the first floor in multiple different locations. And it looked as if there was a struggle. There was a trail of blood that led to the stairs that go to the basement. 
And at the bottom of the basement, they found the bodies of Seth and Eunice. Seth had been stabbed over 40 times. And Eunice was shot in the head once. Holy shit. Yeah. Police came outside and told David that his cousin and fiance were gone. And then David had to call and tell the rest of the family, which ugh, it's awful. So the first thing that detectives did was look at the blood evidence to try and do a little. Wow. <laughs> My brain like short circuited um, <laughs> to blood evidence to try to determine what exactly happened. Okay. <laughs> Good job. Oh, that was so hard. <laughs> Pregnancy brain. <laughs> Um, they said that you could see smears of blood along the floor and along the furniture. And um, along with looking at Seth's body, they could tell that he definitely fought back. Like he fought for his life. Eunice, however, was shot once in the back of the head. So she didn't really have a chance to yeah. fight. Detectives also suspected that there was more than one attacker. And they did find two distinct books boot print patterns on the floor neither of which belonged to seth or eunice so they knew that there were two attackers Based i know on- who it is huh i know who it is you think you know one of them okay who do you think is the other one i honestly think sheila okay he got the big million dollar house Okay. Yeah, she did move. When they divorced, she moved back into her home daycare house. Mm-hmm. Um, and based on the amount of blood in the dining room, investigators believe that the attack started there and then in various others of the house, ending with Seth being dragged by his feet down the stairs. And on top of it all, it there was 40 stab wounds, which means that it was personal. That's a big thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, they, they and usually... It's associated with a crime of passion and a lover's quarrel, especially if they shot the other girl, Eunice, in the head, especially in the back of the head, because they didn't want her to suffer, but they also wanted to kill her. So interesting. Well, let's continue and see if you're correct. No, I am right. <laughs> I am right. So once police removed Seth and Eunice's bodies, they sprayed the whole house with luminol and found that some areas of blood had been cleaned up, which I thought was really weird because there was blood everywhere. So why would they kill up some or clean up some areas of blood? I don't know. Maybe they didn't want them to know where it happened because maybe there was a clue nearby. Maybe, but they never really circle back around to that. So yeah. Stupid. <laughs> so here's part of your theory is at first they wondered if it was a robbery gone wrong since they did live in such a rich area but being stabbed over 40 times shows that it is personal you don't robbery gone wrong sit and stab someone 40 times no um they decided to reach out to seth's cousin david the one that had called them and asked if he knew of anyone that might want to hurt the couple david said the only issue he knew of um david having or seth having was the mortgage on his home apparently 
The mortgage was a bit out of range for the couple, and it had started when Seth separated from her first wife in 2007 because, I mean, owning a home daycare, she was making a bit more money than Eunice was making. And so with their two incomes, they could afford that house. But without that income, it was just really out of their price range. Yeah. Um, David said that he also noted that noticed that Eunice's Mercedes Benz was missing. So detectives put out an APB on Eunice's car and learned that it had actually already been found a day before. (laughs) Beautiful. (laughs) You're amazing. (laughs) Actually, already been found a day before the bodies were found 10 miles away. Wow. It was parked on the street. With her car and purse still in it, her wallet was there, all of her cards were there, all of her cash was there too. So definitely not a robbery. Like a robbery is more crossed off the list. What? Can I say something? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, you said that the car was still in the car. <laughs> it was. <laughs> The purse was still in the car. There we go. <laughs> and her wallet was still there and all her cards and all of her cash. Okay. So obviously it wasn't a robbery. I would like to say <laughs> that I am 30 weeks into my pregnancy. And I also just found out that I am anemic and my thyroid is low. So my brain is like, there's a hamster running in there, but he's like dying. Excuses, excuses. <laughs> the little hamster needs a break. He's real tired. <laughs> All right, we can excuse you. <laughs> but I want, but when you're not pregnant anymore and we're back Perfection. from recording, yeah, <laughs> or I'm coming for you. <laughs> Perfection. <laughs> I'm going to fly my ass down to West Virginia. <laughs> I like how you um, kind of thought for, is it West Virginia? <laughs> no, I didn't want to triangulate you, and then I'm like, ah, fuck it, it's a big country. Yeah, it's a big state too. So, yeah. All right, so detectives were hoping that the autopsies might provide more information for them to go off of. Um, according to the medical examiner, like they saw, Eunice was shot once in the head, um, which isn't personal especially compared to Seth's murder. So they figured Seth was indeed the target and Eunice was unfortunately collateral damage. And according to the wounds on Seth, there wasn't one wound that would have taken him out. He basically bled to death. Um, and Seth did have a lot of defensive wounds showing that he fought back. And because of these defensive wounds, they decided to swab under his fingernails just to see if anything came back from it. Oh, good. So while waiting for those results, detectives received a phone call from Seth's nephew, Daniel Poku. He lets investigators know that apparently... He lets investigators know that apparently two years earlier... Uh, Right after Sheila had moved out, Seth had an altercation with Samuel Culley, Sheila's younger brother. 
So apparently even after Sheila moved out and the couple were going through a divorce, her brother was still living in Seth's basement apartment. Police figured out that eventually um, they had stopped getting along and Seth told Samuel that he had to leave. Daniel said that Seth's ultimatum led to a knock, quote, knock down, drag out fight. Wow. So police wondered if maybe it was Samuel holding a grudge. And as I was watching this, I didn't know who the killer was. So I wrote, but I don't know. That seems kind of weird to wait two years to do something about it. Unless he was mad that Seth was engaged again. But why would he care about that? Unless Sheila did. So I don't know. Let's see how this plays out. That's what I wrote in my notes. What if he loved him and he was jealous? Oh, that's a thought. That's a thought. So detectives decided to go back and track down Sheila again to see if she knew anything. Um, They told her that at this point, they told her that Seth had been murdered. They said that she seemed genuinely shocked and saddened by the news. She also said that their divorce was pretty much finalized and that they had a final court date of April 29th, 2009. So everything was pretty much fine. Sheila did confirm that her brother did have an argument with Seth when he was kicked out, but it ended there. And in fact, her brother was out of town in New Jersey visiting friends when the murders took place. She also told him that he no longer had a cell phone and there was no way to contact him. What? And this was in 2009. That seems, well, you know, some people don't have phones because they're broke. Yeah, but... There's no way to talk contact him. Yeah, it's a little well, okay. You know what? It happens. I had a patient and his brother ha- didn't know how to get a hold of him either. So mm. seems fishy to me. It happens. Maybe he was into some drugs. Maybe he was in a bad place. You never know. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And he just didn't want to be found. That could be, yeah. Yeah. Well, another weird thing was how the murderers got into the neighborhood because it was a gated community. They had cameras. You had to have like a transponder, which is like a little like garage door opener type thing to um, get into security, um, like get in through security. So you pushed a button and it opened the gate. And when Seth had moved into the neighborhood, he was given three transponders, transponders. Yeah. For some reason, when I said that word, I was like, that sounds weird. Um, <laughs> one they found in Seth's car. Uh, one they found in Eunice's car. So there was still one that was unaccounted for. So when they were talking to Sheila, they said, hey, do you still have yours? And she said, no, I don't have mine anymore. So who has that third transponder, Jessica? So they looked into the records of the transponder use in the neighborhood because they kept it was like a digital record thing. And they saw that the third transponder was used on January 12th, two nights before the bodies were discovered. The cameras also showed that it was a dark minivan, but all they could, but that's all they could see. The license plate had either been taken off or hidden. So that was also a dead end. Oh, that's interesting. You are not in San Francisco, ma'am. And it's also taking out like half your body. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
audio only listeners, <laughs> Jessica decided to do a virtual background randomly and it looks awful. <laughs> wait, wait, let's do grass. Why is it taking out like half your body? Well, because the microphone's in the fucking way. Oh. Mm. So <laughs> then uh, minutes later, the dark van is on the camera leaving. And then an hour and 47 minutes later, you can see Eunice's car coming into the community. So that's when she was coming home. So this means that she was actually the first to arrive home where most likely the murders were sitting and waiting for her. Oh, that's really sad. And isn't it like terrifying to think of them just like, like murders just sitting in your house waiting for you to get home. Yeah. Sitting and wait. That's terrifying. Then, um, at about eight 29, Seth pulls into the neighborhood. So he gets home and a few hours after the van left, Eunice's car is spotted on the video leaving. So timeline of events, van comes and goes. Eunice comes home. Seth comes home. Eunice's car on camera leaving. Okay. Got it. Records also show that the third transponder had been used just one other time on January 1st, 2009. And the car that was on that video, it was a different car and it didn't obscure its license plate because the murderer was too dumb to think like hey i've used this before and the plate was registered to a man named delford barnes so delford's last known address was sheila's address (gasps) the plot thickens the plot thickens (laughs) so back to sheila's they go on february 18th they had a warrant to search her home and delford's car Delford was also brought into the station for questioning. Um, Sheila said that Delford was her boyfriend and he had been living her with a f- living with her for a few months at this point. They said, well, would Delford want them dead? And she was like, I can't think of any reason why. That just seems like super weird that uh, it just seems really bonkers. And especially his name. Yeah, that's a weird name, right? It's a really weird name. Um, Also, police did not find the transponder in Sheila's house, but they did take a pair of Delford's boots that could be consistent with the boot prints at the crime scene. And um, they found a receipt for a storage unit in Delford's name, and that was about it. But they were able to get a warrant to search the storage unit. And this is where it gets really weird. They found a lot of unusual, quote, unusual religious items. What do you mean unusual religious items? So black magic type items. Interesting. Um, They found a candle that had the words die, 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 Seth Adu etched into it. Oh, I don't like that. Yeah. Ew. And Delford, and I don't, I'm not a huge fan that they made this leap, but Delford is from Jamaica and some people in Jamaica practice voodoo. So they thought maybe it could be part of a voodoo thing. That's rude to assume that. Yeah. 
But unfortunately, that wasn't enough to charge him. So, but they did question him at the station, and he he didn't give up anything. So they had to let him go. That's poopy. Yeah. So while they're waiting for a DNA warrant, um, they decide to look at Samuel again because that's really their only other lead that they have. And they call in Sheila's daycare workers to see if they had any info. And they said that it couldn't have been Sheila because she was home at the time of the murders. Um, And they were there because they work there. Um, But they did give them Samuel's phone number that they had. So they he does have a phone number. Yeah. Oh, what a sneaky, sneaky, yeah. sneaky. So they're like, well, what else is Sheila hiding? So they get a warrant for Sheila's financial records. And they find out that apparently her and Seth were still beneficiaries for each other on a number of different policies. And one was a million dollar policy. And the policies expired on the finalization of their divorce, which was happening in February, one month after Seth's murder. What? Also, Sheila put in a claim for the insurance policy one day after finding out that Seth was murdered. Oh, my God. Yes. So it is a combo effort. (laughs) You lied to me. (laughs) So detectives also get a warrant for Samuel's phone records and they use it to locate where he is. And then they go and get him and take him into custody. Um, He was in New Jersey. And he said to them, quote, I had a feeling y'all was coming. Oh, no. What a stinker. He immediately confesses. (laughs) What? (laughs) He doesn't waste any time. Yeah. He's like, this is what happened. Um, he said on January 12th, Delford asked Samuel to go with him to run some errands. Um, one was go to, one was to go to the Oak Creek house to get mail. So he went and Delford had the transponder and the garage door opener. Samuel said that while they were waiting for Seth to get home, Eunice showed up, um, surprising them, which doesn't make sense to me because she lives there. So why would it surprise you that she came home from work? literally especially if your main goal wasn't to murder them well they were their goal was to murder seth oh my god but not eunice um delroy delroy delford delford he was involved yes oh so samuel said that delford had a gun with him and said that quote eunice's panic set him off so you know nice (sighs) victim blaming yeah. And as she was running away, he shot her in the back of the head at the top of the basement stairs. Samuel then said, oh, my God. He said, I looked down at the steps and she was rolling down them. And I was like, that's so sad. That's horrible. Yeah. Like, how do people not have remorse? I know. Um, And then after they murdered Eunice, they sat and waited for Seth to come home. So for like an hour and something, they just sat there with Eunice's body and waited. That's horrifying. They said, uh, Samuel said that when Seth came home, Delford went off and quote, all hell broke out. Samuel said the fight went throughout the house and both he and Delford had knives, both Samuel and Delford had knives, but Delford did most of the stabbing. 
Delford then drags his body, uh, Seth's body to the basement uh, and they took Eunice's car and abandoned it. They were hoping that someone else would steal Eunice's car, probably as like an alibi or like to throw police off. And they then walked back to Sheila's house. They said that Samuel never implicated his sister, um, Sheila, and actually wouldn't talk about her at all. But then he said that Delford must have given the transponder and garage door opener back to Sheila, Mm -hmm. showing that she obviously knew. Yeah. So Samuel Cully is charged with first degree murder, which he pleads guilty to. They then arrest Delford, but he refuses to speak. So they didn't really have a ton of evidence on Delford, um, but the analysis of his boots came back and it was a match uh, of the boot prints found at the murder scene. And then because he was officially charged, they could test his DNA and his DNA matched with DNA found under Seth's fingernails. Oh my God. What about Sheila? Oh, we'll get to her. Oh, okay. So like I said, Samuel pleaded guilty and then they used him as a star witness in Delford's case. Delford was found guilty on two counts of first degree murder and he was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. Um, Samuel was also sentenced to life, but now they needed to connect Sheila. They believed that she was the mastermind, but didn't do the actual murdering. And as they start to talk to more friends and family of Seth and Sheila, they found out that maybe the divorce wasn't as amicable as they had originally thought. You think? (laughs) They found out that Sheila was a little mad that she had spent all of this time supporting Seth while he got his degree. And then she didn't really get any benefit from it. And the last straw was the announcement of Eunice and Seth's pregnancy and engagement. Add to that that Sheila was about to be excluded as a beneficiary of his insurance policy. And Sheila was looking real good for this. Um, and on January 12th, 2012, three years after the murders, <laughs> they charged her with conspiracy to commit murder. But this was all like circumstantial evidence and they wanted something a little bit more hard. So they did a handwriting sample to see who had written on that candle to show intent that she wanted him dead. The medical, or I'm sorry, not the medical, the examiner came back and said that it was Sheila's handwriting, but I don't know. That seems kind of flimsy to me. Cause it's like your handwriting versus etching in a candle. Yeah. I feel like that might. And if you know that you're being investigated for murder, like you're not gonna, you're going to mess up your handwriting a little exactly. bit. Exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah. That makes no sense. No, but they used it and it worked. (laughs) With this evidence, Sheila entered an Alford plea, which do you know what that is, Jessica? I think we've talked about like one other time on this podcast. You've definitely talked about it. Was it the one where you accept the, um, like you accept the conditions, but you don't admit that you're guilty? Yeah. Yeah. So you said it's basically saying I'm not guilty, but I do think prosecution has enough evidence for them to convict me, which is yeah. such a weird plea. But um, with that plea, she was sentenced to 20 years. But she re- was released in 2021 after serving only 10. Of course she was. Yes. Samuel and Delford are both still in prison to this day. 
And was she still allowed to run her business during those three years? Do you know? Oh, I don't know. That's a great question. I would think so because she wasn't charged with anything. But I would feel like if you were under investigation for murder that you wouldn't be be around around children. You would hope so, right? Interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. So let's, wow, that was my son. Did you hear him? I did. (laughs) (laughs) He's playing. Um, So uh, let's hear some deathbed confessions. Okay. Again, I'm sorry that it's kind of like a lazy episode, but I thought that it was really cool. I've been wanting to do it for a while. Yeah, you brought it up for a while. Yeah. Yeah. So I figured I would just rip off the bandaid and do it. (laughs) So it's just all going to be verbatim because it's obviously people's stories stories, yeah (laughs) so i'm gonna go i'm gonna use buzzfeed first and then we can kind of go from there if we have time okay sound cool yes okay so the first one is from anonymous they said my mom had a patient who was terminal and confessed to killing his twin brother in vietnam so that he could blame the death on the war steal his identity and then return to the u.s to be with his brother's wife oh my god (laughs) savage isn't that wild that's crazy this is off to a great start (laughs) the wife had passed away years earlier and the patient's children blamed the confession on dementia until after his passing But as it turns out, the patient's daughter ended up finding a handwritten confession from decades ago stuffed into an old Bible. Oh, my God. Yeah, I wouldn't think that that was dementia. Like, that's a pretty specific thing. Yeah. That, like. And a lot of the times with dementia, they kind of, like, revert back to their younger self. Do they not? Yeah. Or, like, forget things. I don't think. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know much about dementia, but. I don't either. But Interesting. Wild. Wow. Okay. Good start. Yeah. <laughs> the next one is from. Oh, come on now. <laughs> A great aunt of mine says that when her husband was on his deathbed, he confessed that he had actually shrunk two of her very favorite and expensive sweaters <laughs> by drying them many years before. She thought that maybe somebody broke into their house and stole her things because he threw them away to hide the evidence. For years, she had hoped that they might turn up. She said she even suspected one of her friends may have stolen them at a party. Nope. He was just too afraid to admit that he'd ruined them. And for 20 years, she obviously forgave him. And they had a laugh about it right near the end. (laughs) But how freaking funny. That's such a guy thing to do. Yeah, right? (laughs) The next one is from Anonymous. I had a patient. I know. I had a patient who is an 86-year-old woman who put a ton of crosses around her room. I had to ask her to take them down due to the inability to create the care she needed. She insisted they all stay up because, quote, it was one cross for each soul she took, unquote. If that's true, she took 14 souls. 
Wow. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, I need to know. I want to know more about that. <laughs> I know. <laughs> the next one is from MT Job Job. <laughs> My great grandmother told us her birthday was October 30th, her whole life. On her deathbed, we found out it was October 31st. She and her family had lied for 80 plus years out of superstition. Oh, that's funny. Paperwork proved it after she was long gone. Oh my gosh. I had a coworker whose birthday was on Halloween. She loved it though. I would freaking love that. Yeah. I would think it's so cool. Yeah. I've always wanted to have one of my kids on Halloween, but it just never works out. <laughs> Mine might this time. She's due November 8th. So we'll see. That would be exciting. Yeah. My Yay. dad's birthday is October 23rd. So that'd be cute too. Aw, that's adorable. Yeah, Evie's birthday is a day after my sister's. Uh-huh. And my sister was really excited to have a birthday twin. And <laughs> she just pushed another day. So she took forever. <laughs> yeah, she took for freaking ever. Over 33 hours. Ugh. What a... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the next one is also from Anonymous. I don't know why you'd want to be anonymous. These stories are cool. Yeah. When my grandpa was dying, he confessed to my mom that her younger brother was not his biological son. My grandma had passed away years earlier and had gone to the grave with her secret. Wow. My grandparents were not together and lived separately. But during that time, it would have been very scandalous to have a child by another man. My grandfather raised my uncle like he was his own son and none of the kids or anyone suspected he had a different dad. It wasn't until later when my mom told my uncle and he didn't care. Basically, no one in our family knows. Even I found out by accident. Oh, wow. That's crazy. Yeah. The next one is from I'm Nickum01. <laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs> I don't either, but I like it. My dad told me that when his grandfather was about to die, he finally told his family why he had this tattoo on his arm. It was always a mystery because he was a pastor at a church and he never spoke of it. Apparently, when he was 19, (laughs) I haven't read these. This is funny. Uh, (laughs) He was a safe cracker and robbed a bank. Whoa. And then got arrested. So he got the tattoo in prison. Oh, my gosh. But when he got out, he decided to never tell anyone, and he turned his life around. Yeah, sounds like it. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? That is crazy. Holy crap. Oh, Regina Alloway says, I work in end-of-life care and have been there for many deathbed confessions. But the saddest one was a woman who delivered an illegitimate stillborn baby at home by herself and and decided to put the baby's body in the basement freezer because she couldn't bear the idea of her community knowing what happened. Like, what did she just keep the baby in your freezer for all that time? At least, like, bury it. Yeah. I'm disturbed by that. Yeah, me too. I don't like that one. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) The next one is Luno Lee 212. 
she says, or they say, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) My mom and aunt grew up thinking their sister died by slipping and falling while getting out of the bathtub. They were all in their 20s when it happened, and it wasn't until my grandfather was on his deathbed that my mom and aunt found out how she really died. Oh. They had been cleaning out the house when they came across Suzanne's death certificate and discovered the true cause of death. They confronted my grandfather, who confessed that Suzanne had died by suicide. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. It's too bad. Ribbon says, when my grandfather died, he finally told my mom that he and my grandmother had been divorced for years. Oh, no one in the family knew it all. He had it in his will to still give her everything and they still lived together. When my mom was going through his things, sure enough, she found the divorce papers dating back to 1978. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> oh, my God. That's so funny. Oh, my gosh. Bess K89 says, my mom never knew her dad as she was a result of a one night stand back in the early 60s. My nan came from a conservative family, so it was a bit of a scandal. She was going to give my mom up, but her own mother said no way and raised her herself. My nan always lied about who my mom's dad was, saying he was a horrible person and going as far as to give him a cartoon character's name, thinking it would make it hard to ever look him up. Oh, gosh. On her deathbed, she confessed she actually didn't know who he was and that he was one of a few sailors who were at the port when my mom was conceived. Oh, no. She had no names and no details. Oh, gosh. Yeah. (laughs) Next one is anonymous. My grandma confessed to cheating on her husband, and she encouraged my mother, her daughter-in-law, to do the same. Oh, my grandma. (laughs) KMLW71 says, before my grandma passed, she told us she hated being married and raising kids. Oh. Awful. Well, then. (laughs) (laughs) Like, stop having kids then. She said she wanted to do so many things she could never do, but that she still loved everyone more than anything. My mom later passed away with the same type of regrets. Oh, maybe just like keep that one to yourself. Yeah. You're going to do nothing but hurt your family and then you die. So that's awful. Yeah. Maybe just keep those ones to yourself. Like don't have children. The next one's anonymous as well. They said my dad grew up thinking his mom committed suicide when he was 10. When my grandfather passed away about a decade ago, he can. Oh my God. He confessed to my dad that he had actually killed her. (gasps) Oh. Oh, my. That was not where I saw that going. Wow. Anonymous says, my grandmother was born in Cuba. And when she came to the U.S., she would cash her social security checks and keep them in a pot under her bed. When she died, we decided to go through every inch of her apartment to see if we could find the money she would hide. My uncle told us that the final week she was in the hospital, she kept telling him to check in the oven, but gave no context as to why. Well, 
when my mom and I opened the oven door, we found a trash bag taped under one of the racks. We opened it up and found two Tupperware containers with a total of how much money? Million dollars. $12,000. Oh. In them. Wow. Although I feel like if you looked all over and you didn't open the oven, you didn't really do a great job of looking. (laughs) Really? Like you are not true treasure hunters. (laughs) Always check the oven. Yeah. And finally, M. Catherine Kelly says, my grandmother told all of the kids, me and my grown cousins, that she had a tattoo of the outline of Texas on her ass. The nurse in the room burst out laughing and confirmed that it was true. <laughs> it's a very tame secret. <laughs> my, uh, my, one of my best friends, she has a tattoo of a T-Rex on her butt cheek. <laughs> That's cute. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we like that. <laughs> um, how are we? Oh, we're good for time, right? I have a couple more. Cool. I like these. These are awesome. Thanks. When 17-year-old Amy Billig disappeared on March 4th, 1974, the entire community of Coconut Grove, Florida was devastated. Billig reported made, reportedly made a trip home after getting out of school, changed clothes, and was seen getting into a van to visit her father's place of business. But she never arrived. Hmm. Investigators looked for her, but to no avail, and even used her journal as a guide to try to figure out what had happened. Authorities found her camera by the highway, but there was no real leads as to her whereabouts. Her mother, Susan, never stopped looking for her daughter and traveled around the world following potential leads. She wrote a book about her investigation detailing all of the tips called in and the motorcycle outlaw subculture she was drawn into as she searched for her daughter. I feel like I've heard of this story. I feel like I listened to a podcast on it. Really? Yeah. Sounds familiar. One of the strongest leads she possessed was that her daughter had been taken by members of the Pagans Motorcycle Club to party in the Everglades. In 1998, a former enforcer confessed to the deed, admitting the club had picked her up, slipped her something, then taken her to the clubhouse and repeatedly assaulted her. Her heart stopped as a result of the substances and abuse, and the gang dropped her body in the swamps of the Everglades to get rid of the evidence, feeding her to the alligators to cover their tracks. That's Um, awful. The members of the pagans had been questioned in her disappearance, but repeatedly denied any knowledge of the event, Only at the end did he admit to his wife that members of the club were responsible. It's unclear if Susan ever believed his confession or if an actual confession ever took place. Authorities were hesitant to believe his widow, thinking she was trying to capitalize on the passing of Billig and her husband. Susan Billig continued to look for her daughter, indicating she wasn't satisfied with the widow's information. Interesting. Oh, I'll do one more. I know it's a shorty, but that's fine. Margaret Gibson confessed to the slaying of director William Desmond Taylor. Oh, 
She wasn't a prime suspect in the death of Hollywood director William William Desmond Taylor, but in her final moments, she asked for a priest and confessed to killing him. She was a former actor, worked with Taylor in 1910. But after he passed, the connection didn't receive notice. There were several more likely suspects, including Taylor's friend and possible lover, uh, Mabel Normand, and young women in love with Taylor named Mary Miles Minter and Taylor's former valet, Edward Sands. William Desmond Taylor was killed in early February 1922. There were no witnesses, and Normand was the last person known to see him alive. Norman had a substance abuse habit, and there were theories that Taylor's attempts to clean her up may have been a motive. When police searched his house, they found love notes from Minter, as well as a nightgown, and later discovered she had once tried to end her life with a gun that resembled the one used on Taylor. Hmm. The investigation into Taylor revealed that Sands had been stealing money from Taylor, and authorities discovered one additional suspect, Minter's mother, Charlotte Shelby. Shelby was said to be opposed to any relationship that may have been budding between the daughter and Taylor. There's no known motive for Gibson having slain Taylor, and the case remains unsolved. When Gibson confessed, she was going by the name Pat Lewis, and during her time in Hollywood, she'd been in trouble with the law, but aside from her confession, there's nothing linking her to the incident. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah. Oh. I'm not really going to I don't think I'll read this one, but I, I'll just read like the titles of the next one because I find that they're more interesting. Okay. Um, Nilly Shamrat told police her late husband confessed he'd stolen Marie Antoinette's pocket watch. <laughs> um, Christian Sperling fessed up to faking the Loch Ness monster photos. James Washington thought he was at the end and confessed to murder, but he survived. Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. (laughs) When he recovered, he tried to take back his confession, (laughs) claiming that he was hallucinating. (laughs) Yeah, I'd probably do the same thing. Like, oh, I mean, uh, oops. That's not real. (laughs) After a three-day trial, he was convicted and sentenced to life in prison without parole. (laughs) Wow. Uh, KKK member Henry Alexander denied involvement in Willie Edward Jr. slaying until his final moments. Otis Toole confessed to slaying a six-year-old right before he passed. Oh, Otis. Christopher Smith lived with his guilt for over 20 years. Apparently, he had raped and fatally beaten Joan Harrison in England in 1975. Um, yeah. Hate yeah, hate that. Alice Mock falsely accused a this is terrible. Falsely accused a black friend of rape, which sent him to prison for over a decade. Oh my God. Horrible. James Brewer confessed to shooting a man who flirted with his wife only to live and go on trial. Yeah. <laughs> Roy Heath admitted to slaying a man and led police to the body buried under his patio. Hmm. 
Oh, wow. Eileen Tessier confessed to providing her son with an alibi, but may have falsely accused him. (gasps) That's interesting. Geraldine Kelly told her family she slayed her husband and stored his body in a freezer. Oh. Yuck. Anyways, if you want me to cover any of those stories, let me know. Yeah, so those sound really interesting. <laughs> those are wild. Holy yeah. Crap. Anyways, <laughs> sorry for that like weird wild ride today. But that was crazy. No, I enjoyed that. That was some oh, of them were really cool. Some of them were real sad. Oh, I know. Like some of them were just outrageous. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. Do you have any what? jokes for me, Jessica? Because I have zero. I have one. Okay. So look for another one while I'm telling you this oh, one. Oh, geez. Okay. <laughs> Why can't pirates learn the alphabet? I don't know why. They always get lost at sea. <laughs> That's cute. Um, that was provided by my husband. <laughs> <laughs> How about what is the best thing about Switzerland? It's a it's very positive. Well, that is true. But the answer to the joke is, I don't know, but the flag is a big plus. Oh, <laughs> I think I told that one. That's Did you? <laughs> I think so. And I obviously forgot it. <laughs> uh, knock, knock. Who's there? Isabel. Isabel who? Isabel not working? <laughs> I don't understand it. That's stupid. That was a dumb joke. Isabel not working. Oh, is the bell not working? Yeah. Oh, my God. Because <laughs> they knocked, right? Yeah. 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 Okay. Uh... Yesterday, I saw a guy spill all his Scrabble letters on the road. I asked him, what's the word on the street? (laughs) Okay, I got one more. Okay. What do sprinters eat before a race? I don't know what. Nothing. They fast. (laughs) I like that one. (laughs) Well, if you want more of us lovely ladies, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. And if you'd like to rate and review us, you can do so on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. We love it. And Yay. if you want to send us stories, you can. Um, if you want have to have a hear... deathbed confession, <gasps> send it our way too. Imagine. Yeah. Cool. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, we look forward to bringing you two new stories next week. Bye. Bye.